Welcome to the Glasgow Short Film Festival 2021 podcast. I'm Sana Yahul, the festival's co-director, and on behalf of our entire team, thank you for listening. Named in honour of one of Scotland's greatest filmmakers, the Bill Douglas Award for International Short Film was inaugurated at GSFF in 2012 by Bill's lifelong friend and collaborator, Peter Jewell. Each year, a jury of filmmakers and film curators chooses a film from our international selection that best reflects the qualities found in the work of Bill Douglas. Honesty, formal innovation, and the supremacy of image and sound in cinematic storytelling. To celebrate the award's 10th anniversary this year, we checked in with all previous winners. In this episode, we present a conversation between Danish-Palestinian filmmaker Madi Fleifel, who won last year's 2020 Bill Douglas Award with his film Three Logical Exits, and one of 2020's jury members, Laura Rantanen, a Finnish filmmaker who herself won the award in 2019. You can listen to an interview with Laura about her work in the previous episode. In Three Logical Exits, Fleifel revisits the same protagonist of his previous works Xenos and The Man Returned. The film is a sociological meditation on the different exits that young Palestinians choose in order to cope with life in refugee camps. You can watch Three Logical Exits on our screening platform during the entire festival week, along with all other previous Bill Douglas Award winners. And now, enjoy the episode and hopefully see you online at GSFF21. Hey, hello, good afternoon from Helsinki, and I'm very proud and happy to introduce you Mahdi Flavel. I was part of the jury that uh, chose Mahdi's film for the winner of the festival. Firstly, I would like to know what was the initial driving force for you to make the film Three Logical Exits, and how did you find the audiovisual form? For the film, yeah, I, I think I mean the, to begin with, uh, three logical exits. I would say is a continuation of uh, where it all started back in 2012 with my uh, feature documentary, A World Not Ours, which is also set in Ain al Hilwi camp, which is the refugee camp in Lebanon where my parents were born and where I spent many summer holidays and. Um, out of that came several short films. Uh, they were they just sort of followed the one. The first one I thought was an epilogue to a world not ours, but then came another and another and another. <laughs> and so I've sort of been following uh, the the characters that featured in that film 
and Reda was one of them. He's uh, my grandfather's neighbor. His family lived just across the street. And so I've seen him since he was a kid, since he was 10 years old. And I mean, I started consciously filming there in 2000. Uh, my father had been filming there since I can remember, yeah, all the way back in, in the 80s. And so um, he featured in, in many of the recordings I had uh, from, from the summer holidays and from, from filming all the uh, people in this alleyway in the neighborhood where we were. And um, when, I, when I came back in 2019, that summer, uh, I was visiting the camp, visiting my grandfather with my mom, and uh, Reda was still there. And so it was just the most obvious thing to continue documenting what was going on in his life. Mm, yeah, yeah. So next, I would like to know a bit about your relationship with Reda. You already talked that he is a neighbor of your grandfather, but I, I would. I am very curious to know that how it is to follow a person for such a long time. Like if you have been filming there consciously for twenty years, basically. So how is your relationship? Uh, do you see there is like a professional and personal side or everything is mixed together? And how is Reda now? How is he and his family? Are they still in Lebanon or did they come to Europe? So um, to, to begin with, um, the, the whole filming, I mean, I, I never intended to be a documentary filmmaker. I, I know it might sound like a, a good old cliche, of, but I, I actually wanted to be a fiction director like you know write my own script and and direct my own stories and and so when i i studied in um, film school un, under ian seller actually <laughs> I, uh, i i was in the fiction department and i i was but i always wanted to tell stories about what i knew mo- most intimately which is the you know the the kind of the, the exile experience the palestinian story uh, and 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 in particular this refugee camp in south lebanon which is Ain al-Hilwi is the largest Palestinian camp. There are 12 in Lebanon. And Lebanon, just to give you an idea, it's a country that is half the size of Wales. Very, very complicated place uh, with the majority uh, Shia population uh, and a minority Christian population. And then you have the Sunnis, which is also, I mean, Palestinians are part of the Sunni population. They're not part of the political landscape. Uh, they don't have citizenship. They're stuck in these refugee camps. There are about 73 uh, occupations if, uh, that they cannot work in the police force and uh, in the health sector. Uh, they, they can't really be part of uh, Lebanese society. It's a, it's a very tough gig for, for a Palestinian in Lebanon. And um, so I've always wanted to to sort of uh, shed some light on that and, and, and tell stories about this particular topic. Because, you know, when I, I was privileged enough to come to Denmark in the 80s, and, and when I came here, I, I realized that uh, all of a sudden I had a, a Danish passport, I, I could travel the world, I had some, I had a freedom that, I, that most of my close friends and cousins and, and family members didn't have. It, it was partly to try to, to understand that. And so that that's what I wanted to document. You know, making fiction proved to be much more difficult. How do you finance a film that is set in a country that doesn't really have a, a an industry, an infrastructure, uh, in a language in Arabic? That you know, so how how do you how do you finance that? It was very difficult. I mean, the most direct way was to pick up a camera and go and and just 
shoot stuff. It was it was sort of a default thing. I, I started documenting the closest people to me, you know, uh, friends from the neighborhood, my grandfather, uh, my uncles. Uh, so and and it was also a way for me to understand them as people. When when you have this sort of form, uh, reality becomes uh, a, a different space, and and you start to look at them through this lens, and and they become. I wouldn't say characters, but you know they become people—people people with dreams and hopes and fears—and and and so you 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 start to see them in this sort of narrative. And Reda became one of these characters. He he left uh, Lebanon, went to Greece, where I ended up at, in 2011, and and started following some of the guys that had made an attempt to leave Ain al Hilwi and and go to Europe, but they were stranded in Athens and. Some went into prostitution and drug use, and 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 he was he 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 kept he kept popping up in front of my camera, so to speak. It's like a it's like a confessional booth. It's almost like a mirroring, you know. I see myself in them in a way as what would my life have been like if I if my parents hadn't made the decision to leave. You know, I, I look at my grandfather. I'm thinking, okay, what 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 was it like to wake up one day and just have lost everything? And uh, you know your home, your land, your uh, social network, your ev- everything. Your entire world is just changed, and all of a sudden you're in a tent with your kids in another country, and uh, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I'm curious to know, like, um, does the presence of camera, when you spoke that the camera, the filming situation becomes this kind of like a room of confession, I'm very curious to know that do you think that the presence of the camera also kind of provokes certain kind of conversations you might not maybe have with your family members without you filming them? I think it would be naive to presume that the presence of the camera is innocent. I, I think the first time I, I started thinking about it was was when I was watching the, the old Kim Longinotto uh, documentaries and was always impressed by how she could create a sort of a narrative. You know, the characters always broke out of their uh, habitat or broke out of the kind of their comfort zone and, and did things that they would have never done. And I was always wondering, God, how how did she manage? Was it just pure timing that she was lucky to be there at this time in their lives? And then they sort of made these decisions and she she was lucky enough to be there at that time to capture this moment. I came to the conclusion that no, it was exactly because she was there. Because they realized that by by someone being there with a camera poking at, you know, like asking these questions, ter- flipping these stones around, and 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 that they were that there was something at stake. I mean, what happened in Three Logical Exits? It ended with Reda still being in the camp, but about six months later, he actually left. He's been in Istanbul for the last three months, but it, it, you know, with the with the pandemic, and it's been really tough for him. So he's stuck in some room in Istanbul, and I'm. I'm here thinking whether I should find the next available flight and and go and see him. And in a way, by by continuing to document his current uh, situation, something could happen. You know, like a new motivation would come as a result, and he would he would maybe find a way to to leave. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what about Reda's family? So he left alone, and he hasn't been able to uh, 
of course, because he stalked himself as well in Istanbul. So do you know how is his family? Uh, he, he married in, in, in the man returned. So I'm curious to know how is he, he, his family doing? Well, his wife and three kids are still in Ain al-Hilwi. Yeah. I mean, the idea is that for him to somehow arrive in Germany where they have some family and then find a way to bring them, that that's the plan. But uh, it must be, I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like for him to be imprisoned in some room in Istanbul in a country where you don't speak the language you don't know and in fact you don't I ask him are you are you able to go out and meet people and and he's like no because I'm 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 here illegally I don't have any documentation I can't I mean if the police catch me they're gonna send me back and I don't I can't go back I can't afford to go back because he's wanted and then and then uh, I mean thank god for technology that he's able to Skype with them, FaceTime with them, um, but it still must be so tough. Whoa, so it's kind of like from one trap to another. Exactly, this when comes to my next question, because uh, in the film you introduced three logical exits, how to cope with the life in a, in, in a refugee camp. But uh, if you were like the master of the universe, what would you introduce as a fourth exit? And if you want to be super surreal, like, okay, the occupation never happened or things like that, you can uh, propose a solution like this. Or, uh, yeah, or or if, if honesty is also cool, like you have been uh, telling so much about, about the, the history of uh, this matter. But yeah, if you had all the power of the world, what would be the fourth exit? Ooh, it's a tough question. I, you know, I think I allude to it, you know, in, in that uh, Marie, the sociologist who proposes the three exits, one being joining a faction, uh, another using uh, uh, and and selling drugs, and the third being uh, immigration. You know, to try to try and leave somehow, and it's usually in a in illegal ways. But but there's that there's this fourth one, which you know, there's this kid that dies at the end. And for me, I fi- I thought that this is this is a, an exit in the current setup. I think uh, the uh, the Palestinian reality today is is stranger than fiction, which is maybe why I could never figure out a way to do uh, fiction films about about Palestine or, or Palestinians uh, because the reality is so absurd. Like I'm I'm now doing a more uh, uh, writing a piece uh, which is proposing what if what if one day it all sort of just evaporated into air and that the uh, right of return was granted for all Palestinians living inside the camps and that they were able to go back to Palestine to their respective neighborhoods and, and villages and that everything was resolved somehow. The, the Zionists decided that, okay, you know, we no longer want this. Uh, we want to go back to our respective countries. The ones that came from Poland and England and Australia and America, they go back there and suddenly the land is empty and Palestinians can go back and live there. How, what would happen? How do you undo uh, 72 years of exile? You know, it, it, exile is irreversible. If you have been waiting for 72 years on something 
of a sudden the waiting ceases, you know, it just it stops. All you know is to wait. It, it, you know what I mean? I, I'm not sure if it's uh, if I'm uh, proposing a sort of an abstract idea or I mean, I wouldn't know the first thing about solving such a complicated matter. Yeah, yeah. And this is for me in the film, it was very like uh, powerful how you you are open about it like that. Uh, this is uh, un understandable, you know, the situation. Like you said that the reality is so absurd, you couldn't write a fiction about it because it's uh, absurd. So I was thinking about when you are making your films uh, in the camp, this might be a stupid question, but are you never thinking about who the audience is? Like, are you making a kind of educating the Western Western audiences about about the situation in in uh, in refugee camps out, outside of uh, um, Palestinian, uh, or are you making them like for yourself to understand this absurd reality, or are you making them for the people who are living in these conditions that you are filming? So, are you never thinking about that, like? to who you make your films for? I, I don't think I'm thinking about it, and I, I don't think you should think about it in a conscious way, because otherwise I would be making re reportages or something, you know, like journalistic uh, stuff, which I I think I think the uh, I'm trying to stay true to an experience I had. So in a way, I'm making them first and foremost for myself. And then I think, you know, Stephen King, the writer talks about having an ideal reader. In his case, it's usually always his wife. You know, he, he always, so when he's writing, he's always imagining, well, I wonder what she would make of this or how she would react to that or what she would think of this or, you know. So there's always, it's a, it's a sort of, there's, there's someone that you're trying to communicate to. Either you, it's someone that is exists in reality uh, or a, uh, an imaginative uh amuse if you will so when i'm when i'm working closely with my editor that's the closest creative relationship i have outside of my own because you know i go there i film everything I, i record the audio i i have ideas about what sort of sounds and music and i want to ha have feature in the film but then comes the editor and he's a way more better editor than than I could ever be. So the conversations are always about what is the feeling that I was going what what are the feelings that I was going through at that time when I was recording this and to to stay true to that and and then hope that by creating this sort of form this piece that somehow you can you're able to transport or to transmit that experience to an audience regardless of who they are you know western arabs or what what i i mean i don't i don't really have a an audience in mind that i want to communicate to i think yeah in an eccentric way i think i'm the first i'm i'm my own first audience so to speak yes yes i understand but i'm still very curious to know about your future plans are you working on a film project at the moment and if you are do you feel comfortable of telling about it or are we just waiting <laughs> i'm i'm always working on something but i never really know when or what shape it will take and so i mean i'm i'm working on a story now set in denmark about my my parents you know when we arrived here in the 80s and what that was like and 
And again, to try sort of and make sense of that, my father passed away eight years ago and he left a box full of old tapes and recordings from his life. And so I'm trying to make sense of that and, and put it into a form, into a, some sort of a narrative. So that's one of the projects I'm working on. And then, you know, I still have a dream that I, I, I want to make a, a fiction piece at some point. So I'm writing on something. And But again, you know, the way I work, I, I work a lot like a in a way, like a video artist, you know, I, I very independently, I try and sort of finance my own pieces. And it, it's so frustrating, the whole kind of development thing that you can end up in through the institutions, the film institute and the, 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 these funds. And, and so I'm, I don't have the patience for it, you know, and I think I work more, although I, I'm, I'm based in a privileged sort of part of the world and we have a, a, a great infrastructure for filmmaking i work more like my colleagues in india or south america or or in, in greece even you know i mean if i whenever i speak to them they're always in production and and filming or releasing things and whenever i speak to my colleagues here in denmark they're always in development and so i i live here but i <laughs> I'm trying to just keep at it as uh, in my own pace, and yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much, Marty, for your for your time and for your thoughts that you shared with us. Uh, I hope everything goes well with you and with your family and friends in in, in Lebanon. Uh, yeah. Let's hope this situation with pandemia gets better soon, and le- I hope that everything is okay with Reda also. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before we finish, a few shout-outs. Glasgow Short Film Festival is made possible thanks to the generous support of Screen Scotland and Filmhub Scotland. This podcast was produced for us by Helena Rifai, with music by Lewis den Hertog. We'd love to hear your responses to this episode and our festival programme, so get in touch. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Glasgow Short. Enjoy the festival. Enjoy the festival.